excerpt from the letters of Jeddah Assam, written for her children. Back in Ninnut, we had a tradition. Every day, as the sun dipped down behind the horizon, sunk into the green shimmer deserts to the west, we would all stop whatever we were doing, and each of us would remove our veils and turn to watch the suns collapse. For many, it was a chance to talk, to share the trials of the day. It was a signal to relax, to drop tools and let muscles loosen. Others watched in silence. They would admire the sun-bright sky and all of the hues of the earth, which had been denied for so long by linen and cloth. I... I like to spend the time watching those around me. My community. My people. I would dwell on their faces, lit in a soft vibrance of sunset, and, whether a close friend or an indifferent rival, in each of them I would find something to cherish. Even now, after all of these months on the road, I keep this tradition. Now when I look around, half of the faces are unfamiliar. Members of the parish and other strangers like us, uprooted from their homes. But, but even with them, there are still so few of us. So many were left behind in a nut, chose to stay despite the storm. And, although I do not regret leaving, I wish we could have convinced more of them to follow us. Welcome to These Flimsy Rituals, a role-playing podcast focused on telling small stories in big worlds. This is our very first episode. Uh, we're calling it episode zero. And it's going to be focusing on introducing our first campaign, its setting, its rules, and its characters. Uh, let's start off by introducing you to everyone. So first up, we've got Elizabeth Simones. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Simones. You can find me on Twitter at CSILF Games. I am a game designer and producer of location-based games. Thryn Henderson. Hi, I'm Thryn Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Thayrin. I'm a game designer and a PhD student of autobiography and video games. Steve Martin. Hey, I'm Steve Martin. I'm a game designer and I'm on Twitter at purple underscore Steve. Ryan Evans. Hi, I'm Ryan. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BrainXray. I'm a diagnostic radiographer, but I like to play games in my spare time. And I'm your host, Adam Dixon. I'm a writer and game designer, um, and you can follow me on Twitter at AdTDixon. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Flimsy Rituals, where you can get updates about the show and find out what we're doing. So we should start out by saying that this episode was recorded a little bit after some of the later episodes that are being released, some of the play episodes. So there might be a few little details about the characters and setting we introduced that might have shifted or changed, but we thought we'd start by introducing the world that we're going to be playing in. And I think everyone should feel free to jump in here as you remember things, but basically we've been talking for a little while, and I think we're calling the world and the campaign Tiding. So I'm not sure like whether everyone will agree with me here, but I think the genre of our game is sort of fantasy-ish. It's set in a world... I guess very different to our own. Um, one of the main features is that there are these big monsters in the world, which we'll describe more later. Or like big monsters is the wrong word. Big, big friends, big creatures, big yeah, yeah beings. So they're called the remnants. Uh, they're scattered across the land, and like the, I guess one of the main noticeable features about them is that they they affect the landscape around them. They might represent a mood or a feeling or a concept. And they kind of alter the space around them. 
Yeah, like the remnants seem like a good place to start because I think we've basically built the world around the concept of the remnants rather than built the remnants into the world. Like they were the thing that we wanted first, these like big touchstones of the area. Yeah, I think I remember sitting with uh, Euphrine and like we were, we were there talking. It's like, just want to create a world with like these big monsters in, right? I think the, the thing we were originally talking about was ghosts. Okay. Just like how neat ghosts were as a concept. <laughs> and then we were like, what if ghosts were like really big? <laughs> what if ghosts were What big? if ghosts were just like so big though? <laughs> Which is very on brand. But yeah, I, I, I do remember talking about like wanting this world that was kind of fantasy and mundane at the same time and just chilling on the horizon with these big things. It was just such a nice vision. And they're not always tangible. They're not always physical. So there's there's two different types of of remnants. Um, yeah, they're called the vacant and the echoes. So I think part of sort of the background of the world and like the law of the world is at least some people in that world will argue that um, these things used to be whole. So they used to the vacant are just physical and the echoes are just spiritual. And I think it. You know, there's a part of the world where they say, you know, these used to be whole things and there used to be a spirit and a physical form together. And at some point they split. But now when you encounter them, they're, they're totally separate and you're not entirely sure which one you're going to meet. Like some might be giant stone creatures that are built into the mountain sides. Others might be weird clouds that drift above you. Or some might be those giant ghosts that Finn was talking about. One of my favourite things about the remnants is how little time we've kind of spent deciding what they are, but how much time we've spent deciding what they mean to people. Yeah. Like, I mean, you you may well know more than the rest of us, but as far as I'm aware, we never were like, this is what a remnant actually is, because it doesn't really matter as much as what the remnant is culturally like and socially. Yeah, we, we've talked about like remnants being almost the mood of a region. Yeah, and that's the other thing that we've talked about is that sometimes the remnants will have a big physical effect on what the environment is around them and what they may be doing and how they can affect that and then you have some where they may not even have much change on their environment or they could have people living in their territory and not even realize that they're being affected by this big beast so i think one of the things that is interesting is we kind of built from that like the idea of these territories, and then went, okay, what would a world look like if this was the effect that these creatures had on it? And I think it's like, compared to a lot of worlds, it's, it's quite like an unpopulated world, or there's only really small communities in, in a lot of it. Like, there are definitely areas where, you know, there's a remnant remnant that represents riches in some way, and their landscape is like, has big harvests, and there might be entire towns and cities that exist there. And then there, there are some areas that might be completely inhospitable to humans like if there's something that represents fire and the landscape's burning there's going to be no one there yeah and i think i i kind of like how we haven't necessarily in in a lot of the areas that we've talked about as being interesting that might come up later on is that we haven't necessarily said in any of them that the remnant is like the focal point if that makes sense yeah i think yeah definitely that there's an extent to which the landscapes feed back into the remnant as much as the remnant yeah. kind of creates it so, so it's maybe worth like talking. I, I, I think it's quite obvious that one of our influences here is like Shadow of the Colossus. I think we were pretty subtle about it, actually. One of my notes is also that one of our inspirations is just images of big things. Like we, we've got a Pinterest board 
And like the first sort of 50 images are just big things in the landscape. Like different Stuff that's really big. Here's a really big chain. Here's a very big tree. Here's a big frog. When we uh, when we started out, like I think I just got back from a, a holiday hiking in in Peru, and like the landscape out there is big. <laughs> like in in the UK, we don't really get quite the scale. We uh, we talked about the idea of that everything in this world is is epic and exaggerated, and it's all it's all huge, you know. I like the idea of it all being huge, but not necessarily like epic in the sort of fantasy epic way sure yeah like I, I like that we've made this this world that is really expansive and sort of overshadowing and overwhelming but people kind of don't see it that way living in it yeah i definitely feel like it's all been done in a very natural way something that feels very real and that you can imagine quite easily not that something's so big and epic that you struggle to even get a picture of it in your mind. I've always thought of it like a volcano to an island, where volcanoes are humongous compared to the islands that they're on, and they have such a big effect on the ecosystem around them, but they're just there. What I really like as well is how the, um, these remnants have really like affected the culture of the people around them, and how... Sometimes they'll have a big effect on that culture, but maybe years and years and years have passed that nobody has seen the remnant or there's been no action from the remnant. And some people may have even stopped believing that the remnants are even real. Yeah, I guess like one of the, one thing that I wanted to mention, like with the Shadow of Colossus stuff, is how people interact with them. Because I, I don't think it is that thing where people are going around trying to kill them or like not usually. I, I think the interaction here is more of, like, the communities might form around them, and things like tribute are kind of a big part of, like, the rule set, uh, quite deliberately, because it kind of ties into a setting. So people who live in a certain remnant's territory would probably find ways to offer tribute to them, hoping, you know, that they will get good fortune from them. It's kind of like the same interaction you'd have with a god, only that god is there physically in front of you. It feels like that sort of space is where the Earthsea influence was really noticeable for me, of yeah. like the grand scale magical elements of the world being there and being very influential, but in the same way people kind of live alongside it. It just weaves itself into like the lives that people live. Yeah, there are still like normal people in this world and they have to go about their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, like people still have to do jobs. There's yeah, there's a, a big old monstery thing walking around, but I also still have to do my daily chores. Yeah, if we just leave it alone and like offer it some, some crops every now and again, hopefully it'll just keep doing its thing and things won't go wrong. Yeah, it's this nice pairing of things being incredible but like also every day at the same time. I think the um the sort of the civilizations that came up around the Nile are quite a good metaphor for, for this. Like every year it does this horrendous devastating thing but actually if you if you treat it right and grow your farms in the right way and don't put houses in the wrong places it's actually going to benefit you massively yeah and i think going back to earthsea like it so like the world has this feeling that is a bit like the archipelago in earthsea where like there's lots of different islands and each has its own distinct culture we don't necessarily have the islands in this but because you've got the different terrains created by the remnants around them kind of have that feel. We have the essence of islands. Yeah, like you, you just you'll be walking and you'll you'll be in a climate that might be quite like wet and drizzly at one stage, and the next 
you're in a desert because that's how the geography is formed in this world is kind of patchwork and you might get interesting areas at like the edges of those territory where the two different pieces blend but generally everything is kind of contained and can be quite erratic wait have we made settlers of Catan the rpg um <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> don't worry i can't wait to visit the corn biome <laughs> I think I prefer to think of it as a crystal maze, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's that's perfect analogy, I think. So we've spoken about a couple of the influences we've had. Like, so obviously Earthsea, but also like tied to that is like, I guess, Studio Ghibli stuff, especially their Earthsea films. Like, it, there's a lot of images there that kind of fit it really nicely. I mean, I have opinions on the Earthsea film, but yes. I think also, I think both me and Fren especially would say like, there's a lot of folklore influence here. Like, it's a lot about, like, those small stories about, you know, spirits that might live in the well. Yeah, the, the, the big thing that's been super interesting for me is taking these concepts that exist in the world, things like, okay, so if we say factually there are spirits, but then be like, how would the different communities deal with that? What are people going to believe in different areas and stuff? So folklore has been a huge bonus there. I mean, especially on a personal level for my character, I basically just was like the embodiment of folklore, so. <laughs> basically, yeah. I think the other ones that I've got down in front of me, um, a lot of art, we looked at like a lot of art. I think there's like a, a particular style at the minute, which is, I guess, sort of Ghibli-ish, but it's like more pastel colours. Like a lot of those kind of landscapes, I kind of imagine when I'm like imagining the characters and and the world and like how the landscape looks, it's probably like quite pastel colours, not very shaded and kind of quite bright. And I guess like the colours are whimsical, although not necessarily the stuff that happens in that world is. I see it as like not necessarily whimsical or happy, but kind of like almost surprisingly soft, I think, what's happening in there. Yeah. Like I definitely don't see it as some high fantasy, super detailed situation. It's not like grim dark monsters. It feels like aesthetically it's quite hopeful. I think so, yeah. And like this doesn't quite match, but some other like art that I really liked. Um, there's an artist called Killian Eng, I think. I hope I'm pronouncing their name right. But like they've got like lots of really drastic colours and like line work going on where the environment is quite ribbony. And I think that has been in my mind a lot when I'm imagining how the different terrain might look. I think um Mobius comes into it uh, to a degree as well, some of the landscapes, especially with the uh, the sort of pastel colours and the, the line work, that really catches the, the feel of it. Yeah, and, uh, and I guess like another thing I might mention, because I think Ziz, when we were planning this episode out, mentioned it, but like there's a band called Squanto. And their music feels a lot like if we wanted to soundtrack this, this is the music that we'd have, or this style of music, I think. It's very, like, peaceful, autumnal sounds, a little bit broken up. It sounds like a weird aesthetic choice, but when I, particularly when you were describing that music, it kind of feels, when I picture the world, as though it's, like, dying, but really slowly and peacefully. Yeah. Like, as in, the world is dying really slowly and peacefully, or, like, the feeling of dying really slowly and peacefully? Both, I guess, like, my aesthetic sort of image of it is something just kind of fading out. Yeah. I definitely feel that the world just kind of has that feel. Like, I don't think it's a world that is whole and okay. It's definitely a world that feels a bit broken, right? And I think, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it feels kind of, like, broken, but not in the violent stages of breaking, just the bit afterwards where everything's just really, like, quiet. Yeah. I think fractured obviously is a strong word, but like it also boils down to how even that these remnants may have been split in half and 
how maybe these groups of people have also been split into their own different areas and territories. I mean, it does reflect in that, for sure. Yeah, and I think there's a question that I don't even think I've answered in my mind, which is, if these remnants either used to be gods or are like the servants of gods and have been split, you know, sometimes they get, they might die or fade out of existence. Is is there a way that new ones come in? And like, what happens when there are none left? Does the world end? Or can people keep existing? So it's like these sort of like questions, I think. Guess we'll have to play to find out, right? I'm excited yeah. to find out, yeah. I think it just, it all feels very like autumnal. I, I think seasonal, especially. It feels like it's the autumn of the world, but also I think there's like a big focus on like the small details of the world, which I find quite nice. And a lot of that is around the nature and like the seasons passing. I think that might be in part because when we were first creating the world and like the situation that we're starting, we're playing The Quiet Year, which is a game that focuses on like the rhythms of the season as you play through a year of like a community's life. And I think I think that's kind of carried over a little bit. So we recorded that as an episode initially and then decided that we wanted to do a different intro. So it's still keeping the same situation and like the same setting, but we're just finding different ways to tell that starting story. And and we'll come to that in a minute. I think my last two influences that I've got down, which are less about the world and more the story that we're telling within it, are the TV show Over the Garden Wall and the game The Banner Saga, because we're kind of telling very similar stories about people traveling through a landscape. I think both of them make sense. Like, Over the Garden Wall, I like that sense of the episodic feeling of getting to a new place each episode and exploring that location and maybe solving some problems or issues within that space and then just moving on episode to episode. I, I don't think we've quite got as fast a rhythm, but it's just been, like, a really nice influence on this. And the Banner Saga feels like it has a lot of parallels, which we'll get into soon. I haven't actually played the Banner Saga, so I'm just going to pretend I like I have. I got too sad. So yeah, I think the last thing to introduce before we talk about the starting situation some more is the other key piece of the world, which is that spirits are definitely real. They're a tangible thing that exists. And in terms of the humans and the people in the world, most people will have the physical body and then a spirit. I think we kind of wanted to mirror what was happening with the remnants in the world, right? Yeah, yeah So definitely. we wanted to have that similar situation where... A thing that is whole can be very much not whole later on. It made sense for us because we wanted to have a world where magic sort of featured to tie that intrinsically to like the spirit of a person and have that be a tangible thing. Yeah, I guess it is worth saying that magic exists in this world, but is a thing that has an incredibly high cost. And we'll introduce like some of the mechanics of it later because one of our characters like uses magic quite extensively, but one of the main things is like the people who can use magic properly have this thing called unraveling, where if they use it too much, they lose pieces of themselves and their spirit. The spirit is definitely a thing that can be affected. It, it's a thing that can be harmed. Uh, I think that's how we get like ghosts in this world is if a physical body is killed and the spirit is strong enough, like the spirit will linger on and there will be a ghost. In the same way, like if, if the spirit is killed, we have a thing called a hollow, which is just a human without any sort of spirit. The interesting thing about that for me was that we haven't put it in as a feature that is just like wholly accepted everywhere. It's a thing that is a fact about the world, but how chill people are about it is is very differing. Yeah, I think the way that um, people interact with that obviously, again, depends on their culture, their religion, and how 
they like to view what happens to them after they die or what happens to your soul you know I think that's the same as where we are in real life people think different things happen after you die and it's no different here I do kind of like so that it's not intrinsically tied to death necessarily no you can be separated from your spirit by somebody who may have other plans for it yeah no like ways in the world in which you could give up a piece of your spirit like if you were sad and grieving you could probably go and get someone to take away that memory and you'd lose a part of yourself but that's a thing that can happen I think, like, we're talking about, like, different cultures accepting this in different ways. You, you definitely have cultures in the world where if someone dies and their ghost is around, it would just be a part of the family. You've got cultures where if someone dies and a ghost is around, like, they would want to ward it off or kill it or, like, destroy it in some way. And in the same way, if someone is hollow and, like, their spirit has been destroyed, like, people are going to have different reactions to that as well. I think one thing that we were very clear on from the start and, like, is probably worth mentioning is if your physical body takes damage you get injured and that's like physical injury like what we didn't want is for the spirit to be associated with mental health like it is connected to your emotions but as much as we talk about this as a duality you've got your physical body and your spirit like there's also the third part which is your mind and that is its own separate entity that's kind of part of this triangle of all three things yeah i think like spirit and body just seems like two separate power sources for you know you as a human being and you can do different stuff with both of them, but they're not mutually exclusive areas of you that they deal with. Yeah, definitely. So I guess the last thing to talk about in this section is a little bit of the situation that we're kind of setting out from. And as I mentioned, we played a game of The Quiet Year, which created a lot of this. We had a lot of the world in mind before we played that game, and then we played it, and that established where we were and some of the characters we would use, and some of the like, conflicts that are happening within the world. So. Most of our characters come from a village called Ninut. And Ninut is a small community of less than 100 people. It's situated in a place called the Sharrow, which is the territory of a remnant of the same name. As this remnant um, circles its territory, and over time, like over the centuries or millennia that it's been doing this, it, it's created a big canyon that circles round the edge of the land. And Ninut is based right at the edge of this canyon on like on a cliff face uh, by a river and at, a, at the bottom of that river there is the net which are these shards of rock that come out and sometimes things flow down from the mountain and you know the villagers will will gather what comes up so the quiet year has set up for where for the last little while uh the the community has been at war with these people called the jackals which in our story um it turns out are are a group of fighters who are trying to do something in the shallow. They're, they're, they're not from this area, but they've kind of come in and and there was a war of them for a long while. But this war is over now, like there's a peace, and then the community had one quiet year in which to kind of reorganise itself before winter came, and we'll get onto this in a minute, but before the bad thing came at the end of winter. If I remember right, one of the first things we established was that the community had only recently arrived, I don't think it was, like, within the last few years, but I, I think since then we've kind of established it's probably, like, 30, 40 years ago that they kind of came to the Sharrow. So they're still trying to establish themselves in this place. And I think the War of the Jackals kind of hurt a lot of that. So we spent a bunch of time, like, watching them trying to, to settle in this place. They still had, like, the first big building that they built there. And they didn't necessarily have good shelter for everyone. They had enough to get by, but they, they, they definitely weren't totally at home in this place. 
there was a group that turned up called the Parish. I can't remember whether Vilta or the Parish turned up first, or whether they... Vil- Vilta turns up first, significantly before the Parish. Okay, so Vilta is a weaver, which is a character that can do small magics, basically. And she turned up to warn the village of some things that were going to happen in the future. And the village was very split on what to do with her. And it it led to one of the factions kind of to create a thing that would poison her in some way. And so we get this moment where I think Vilta learnt about this. And instead of allowing the community to poison her, did this symbolic thing where she went and drank it herself before anyone could do anything. And so it's sent her into a sleep, and we're going to start this season with her having been asleep for months, basically. I think she's a very important character in the campaign. And the Parish joined after, so the Parish were the group that followed Vilta and had committed to helping her on a quest. And there were five of them, and like four adults and a child. Some of them had like strange powers which kind of didn't help quieten the tensions between the village. I, I think a lot of people decided with Vilta, like didn't mind, but a lot of people that were kind of against her, like, saw, like, the magics that one of the characters in the parish called Ioff was doing, which is only, like, simple stuff where they were, like, charming animals, and things, like, threatened to get a bit more violent, and I think we, we kind of ended, ended the session with the parish being kicked out, along with, with about 20 people, had slowly been drifting away, and had joined Vilta, and that's the group that we're going to be following, and see what happens to them in the future. Okay, let's talk about the rules. So we're going to be running a custom built and hacked game based on the Apocalypse Sword engine. Kind of drawing from a lot of different games and a lot of different rule sets have kind of been a little bit mashed together and then we've added some of our own stuff on top as well. So I think like some of the primary influences for the game are Apocalypse World, The Veil, Monster Hearts and Sagas of the Icelanders. If you've not played Apocalypse Sword before, it's... Based on the 2D6 system, it's kind of simple. One of the main things is that it's very fiction first. So you you do a thing in the fiction, you perform an action, and then if it triggers a piece of the rules, then the rules get used. The player never goes, I want to hit this person. They describe what they're doing, and then if the rules are triggered, then we roll to see what happens. So one of the main games that we've built a lot of the system from is The Veil. So The Veil is normally a cyberpunk game, but this is definitely not a cyberpunk system. The main thing we've taken is the concept of using emotions to represent the character's stats. So instead of having things that measure how good you are in a fight, your stats actually measure how good you are at acting under certain emotions. So the six emotions in the game, which are kind of paired off against each other, are mad and peaceful, sad and joyful, scared and powerful. Whenever a character makes a move in the game, the player will be asked what kind of thing they're feeling in that moment. And the stats, which range from like a, a minus three to a positive three, measure how good a character is at operating within that emotional space. So if you're scared is plus two, it doesn't mean that that character doesn't feel afraid. It's just that when they're scared, they're better at acting, they're better reacting, they're better at getting the outcome that they want than when they're feeling other emotions. So one of the other things that were transposed in from the veil is this idea of emotional spikes. So if you roll one of the emotions a lot of times, you gain spikes towards that emotion. So when an emotion reaches five spikes, it kind of peaks out. And that character is affected by that emotion for for a while until they manage to find a way to alleviate it in some way, or until they just give in to it. And part of the reason we decided to go through this emotional system is that we felt it really fit some of the themes and some of the parts of our world, especially this split between the physical and the spiritual. The way we saw it is that the emotional stats kind of represented what was happening in in the character's spirit quite well. 
And there are other ways in which the physical and spiritual are also brought in. Um, we've got playbooks that represent being a ghost. Um, there's also a playbook which allows a player to be an envoy of a remnant. So an envoy is something that was created from the remnant that represents their ideals within the space and like kind of operates as their agent. But even for the characters that aren't completely defined by the physical and spiritual split, there's still a lot of stuff that is kind of encoded in. So if you're a storyteller, you might be able to affect the emotional space around you. If if you're a magic user, your soul is a thing that you use to cast spells. So there's lots of ways that those things are baked in. Are we going to put those playbooks up for people to have a look at? I think so, yeah. I think we'll have a copy of the rules put up, and we'll have a copy of the playbooks put up. Because so we all chose just the least interesting playbooks. You made very cool ones, and then we were like, humans! I mean, Boy, sure, humans. but... I think they're all very, very good playbooks. If you don't say so yourself. <laughs> and, like, a lot of them, like, like as I've said, a lot of this is borrowed from other systems. Like, some of the playbooks, like, some of the playbooks are kind of unique, but other ones definitely, if you've read those other systems, you'll recognise elements of them. No, they are all really good. It was really difficult deciding which kind of character to play. It was nice that we'd done the Quiet Year stuff first, because at least it gave us some characters. I was like, well, okay, well, I have to do that playbook, because that fits them the best. Yeah, definitely. Take the choice away from me. And I think there are some playbooks that definitely fit the setting a little bit more, or like the story we're trying to tell with this group of characters a lot more than the other ones. Yeah. So speaking of characters, should we get into that? Sounds good. Let's do it. So let's talk through and introduce our characters. Um, I think we'll go through each in turn and talk about who they are, what their role is within the story, and talk through the, the like what stats you chose, what they look like, what moves they've got, and all of that. And like the bonds that they have within the village and the community. How cool they are. You say this as the coolest character, I, right? I was going to say, I don't think that applies to many of us. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with Ziz's character, uh, who is called Charla, and she's playing a role book which is called The Kid. Vilta's fallen ill. Tamil has me using a recipe in here for a healing broth that I've never actually tried before. It's very tricky to make, and if you get one thing wrong, you need to start completely over. I am getting better at it. I guess it's good to learn how to make it, but I'm sad we have to use it. At least I know exactly where to find all of the ingredients now, and they have to be freshly picked each time or the healing broth won't work. One of the ingredients is the fruit from the koak tree on the cliff. They grow so far out. Luckily, I've been climbing out to pick them since I was little, even though the fruit is not very tasty. The climbing is fun, though. I tried the recipe that Tamil wrote in here, but it's not very good either. Guess it's got some healing properties, but I wish we could just eat them. I went out to gather some more fruit today. Climbing out in the trees reminded me of the day I found all the caves on the cliff. I went out further than anyone had ever done, and that's when I saw the holes. They were all over the cliffside. I am convinced everyone to help build ladders and bridges so that we could explore them. I wish I was still there, climbing the trees or exploring the caves. All this sitting and watching is hard. I want to help, though. Grandma said that Vilta is very important. I'm not sure why, but since she came, everything seems really different here. People started arguing more. Some people are scared of her, whispering about her being dangerous and trying to trick people. But she's always been kind to me. She even asked about my book. She taught me a new recipe for dumplings that I added in. Anyway, 
Now she's sick in one of our beds. She hasn't woken up in days. It feels like forever. I don't know what happened, but Grandma says some of the grown-ups aren't allowed to visit her anymore. I wonder if they hurt her. Whatever the reason, I won't let them near her again. I will protect her. Okay, so tell me about Charla's. Well, so Charla is a small girl, not quite an adult, but getting there, with fierce eyes and small hands. And when we were looking at the stats to kind of figure out what emotions Chala is best in, she's best in when she's scared, mad, or powerful. This is because when we were working through the quiet year, Chala was one of the first characters I think we kind of came up with as this child that decided to scale a cliff and eventually make an entire bridge system to see if there were mushrooms. I think Charlo is definitely one of my favourite characters from, from The Quiet Year. Like, I sat there the entire time like, please someone play this character, please someone play this character. <laughs> and I'm really glad that you did. Like, she's just a very, like, tenacious, adventurous young girl who is, like, really happy to take things on herself. And really happy to take ridiculous risks at times, which is why I kind of went with the scared and powerful of kind of climbing the cliff that that seemed like the emotions that Chala probably felt the most, but also did the, did her best work in. Yeah. Um, and what numbers do you have in them? So I've got plus one mad, zero in peaceful, minus one in sad, zero in joyful, plus two in scared, and plus one in powerful. Nice. Now, this is partially in the moves a little bit later, but where most of the other characters... They can do a move in a emotion five times before it spikes. Chala is, I think it's hot-headed, and only has four boxes. So goes into emotional spikes a lot quicker. Yeah. And like the upside of that is that you gain XP whenever you spike out. So you're really like pushing yourself and learning through kind of just... Going for it, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, there's a lot of, um, Chala's definitely impulsive and has struggles to, when, after starting a plan, at least as when we were starting with the quiet year, to stop it. So it, yeah. it really fits with my idea of her character. She doesn't necessarily think of, like, all of the implications of doing a thing. She will just do it because that seems like the right thing to do, and then... Let's work out what to do after that, right? And what could possibly go wrong. Yeah. I think we say that a lot with Chala. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Chala, just kind of in her look and feel, has a bright red embroidered parka made of goat wool and has a slingshot and a cookbook passed down through many generations where different members of her family get entrusted with this cookbook, and Chala's the most recent one, where they add in their stories, their recipes, their notes on different herbs and flora and fauna, and it's now Chala's job to add things to this. And why is it Chala that's been entrusted with it? Because she's the favorite of her grandmother. Okay. Grandmother was the last one to have it, and it skips a generation. Are there, like, two books in the family, then? Like, are they staggered? I don't think so, no. I think there's just there's always the one cookbook. 
Does like the odd generation just get written about as children and then as parents and like the the middle of their life is kind of cut out? Oh, they never get to represent themselves. Wow, that's pretty uh. Pretty <laughs> I was going to ask some more about your look. Like, obviously, you're wearing this red parka, but what does Chala herself look like? Well, one of the important things about Chala and the other people from the village of Nanut is that they have veils over their eyes most of the time. They have really, really good eyesight that are terrible at light filtering. So for most of the time, Chala is this bouncy thing in a huge red parka with a hood and a veil. Nice. With tiny little tiny little hands scrambling everywhere. <laughs> I like that what you're kind of implying there is that the answer to the question, what does Charla look like, is we just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just a blur in the distance. So one of the things we didn't talk about in the rules bit was this idea of humanities. This is something that we've added in for all of the characters. So one of the things that we wanted in this world is like this broad definition of what it meant to be human. So it's not as set as in our world. So like people might have feathers growing out of their hair. They might be like a Jericho plant where like six months a year they dry out and then when water comes they come back alive. The eye thing, like this vision thing, is the humanity of you. And for a lot of the people in the village, it's their humanity too. Like this is the thing that makes them different. And in a mechanical sense, what it means is that if there's something that would rely on that, you can kind of call upon it to automatically pass a role. So you can be like, actually, I don't need to see whether I can see these people. My my eyesight is very good. But it also means that if you go from a really light place to a really dark place or vice versa, all of a sudden you can't see anything. True. Okay, so we spoke a little bit about your family. Did you want to talk about the other members of your family? So Chala's family consists of a grandmother, Tamil, parents, Yanni and Saren, and two sisters, Tian and Drish. So Tamil is Chala's favorite out of all of them, and Chala is Tamil's favorite. So she is an elder and a bit difficult in the community, very a very loud voice, and has always kind of taken to Chala and supporting Chala in all of her ideas most of the time. I think you've both got like a similar sort of rebelliousness. From yeah, what you've seen. especially among the other elders. But Entomil will always, where possible, back Chala up. Chala's parents are Saran and Yanni, and. Saren spends most of his time taking care of Yanni, who was wounded in a fight and came back broken. And as such, Saren's not available to take care of the kids as much, and so that's part of the reason why Chala is around Tamil so much. Chala also has two sisters. One of them is older, Tien, and Tien's a prodigy and is ambitious and is learning how to be an adult, which is very much not what Chala's doing right now. And Drish is just a foolish child that doesn't really know as much what's going on right now. I think Drish is probably like quite young in my head, like five or six. Yeah, not quite come into their own, doesn't quite know who Drish is yet. Cool. And you mentioned one of your moves, uh, which is hot-headed. Um... Which other move did you take? So the other moves that I took were Pack Leader, which is when you play with other kids, roll on a 10+, plus, you become the leader of a pack, and you hold three 
on a seven to nine, hold one, and then you spend one hold for one to get the other kids to do what you want, which basically means that I expect Chala to spend a lot of her time trying to convince everyone that her plans are great and they everyone should do them. And whether or not they do them is kind of what we want to find out. Yeah. I think Chala is very much about getting her way. Yep. So one of the interesting things about the kids' playbook is you don't have access to all of the moves that the adult characters do. And this is one of the things that was taken from, I think, Sagas of the Icelanders. So you're kind of limited in how you perceive the world. The sorts of moves you don't have are the ones that allow you to take stock. The ones that allow you to read other people and kind of think before you act. So a lot of time, instead of rolling something that is kind of tailored to get the outcome that you you want, you're, you're rolling something like Tempt Fate which is a move that adults do have access to, but is kind of a little bit riskier. For me, this was really helpful in kind of figuring out how I might want to play Chala, because one, it suits Chala really well, but it just makes it so Chala's a kid and doesn't really know how to do things, and just kind of goes, well, why not? I guess I'll try. So for Tempt Fate, it's um, when you Tempt Fate roll on a 10 plus, you do it. On a 7 to 9, you do it, but there's a cost, which is like a worse outcome, a hard bargain, or an ugly choice. I expect that makes things pretty interesting in the future. So it could be like if you're trying to sneak into a place, it could be that you get into that place, but the bargain is that like someone sees you, or you're just not as clever about it as you think you are. I think, like, there's the perception of the world that you have as a kid, but, like, the adults might be looking at you and really knowing what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I think the last move you have is your bond move, which is every every playbook has their own bond move, and bonds are, are kind of a currency in the game. They represent debts and obligations between characters. So it could be, like, if you help someone out, then you gain a bond on that person, and you can kind of pressure them to get something back in the future. And alongside the normal ways to get bonds... Each playbook has their own special way. Uh, so did you want to introduce yours? So my bond move, Charles' bond move, is still a kid. When you show vulnerability to an adult, gain a bond. One of the things I like about this one is that it allows you to both play the character in a way that is about being genuinely vulnerable, but it also allows you to play the character in a way that is manipulative. Like, you can show vulnerability to an adult and then use that bond instantly to kind of get the thing that you want from them. So you're also going to start with some bonds, but I think we'll introduce what those are after we've introduced all the characters, because I think it'll make more sense. One of the things it might be worth mentioning before we move on is about your relationship with Vilta. I was just thinking that. So in, in the Quiet Year story, you were one of the people that kind of stood by her side. You were the family that kind of fostered Vilta when she was ill. Yeah, when, we, when Vilta became ill... Chala volunteered to stay next to Vilta and watch over Vilta until Vilta got better. And that was a responsibility that Chala took very seriously. But it was not just Chala, yeah, it was the rest of her family as well. Yeah, I can imagine Tamil being an especially big part of that. Yes, there was a lot of distrust around Vilta, and Tamil was very against that distrust. Yeah, and I can imagine that's a big part of why your family decided to follow her in the end. Yes, I, I believe that is the case. And with Saren and Yanni not really being present a lot of the time, Tamil's decisions generally stood. 
So Steve is also playing a character from the village. Um, he's playing a character called Briss, who is part of a role book called The Guardian. They're not here. We came all the way to Khan Moors, like that Lycan said, and Armin, they're not here. No tracks, no sign, nothing. How do they keep doing this? It's like they don't even exist. Bloody jackals. We're supposed to be at war. When was the last time we actually fought them? We just wander around in our own damn countryside, chasing rumours until we find they've killed another one of us. And, and for what? What reason do they have to attack us? Did we stumble into something we shouldn't have? Did we get in their way? If they hate us, if they want to destroy us, why don't they just do it instead of just toying with us? If they want revenge for... Well, they've already... I wonder if they know. Armin, I don't know what to do. People are scared. They don't understand what's happening, and I don't know what to tell them. Isn't would have known what to say, but... I thought this was supposed to be a land of peace. What is it Jeddah says in his stories? After leaving Brussels, we were faced with danger in every land we crossed, and then we found the Sharrow and peace. We already lost one of those. We're hunters, not soldiers. How did we end up as the protectors of our people? Anyway, we'll, we'll circle back. Maybe we'll find some traces of them on our way. And if not, maybe we can catch some game and... If we can't have peace, at least we can have a stew. Okay, so tell us about Briss. So Briss is a guardian, which I I really like the the role book because it's sort of what you'd expect in that they're a protector, a fighter, but it's also kind of a, a bit flipped on its head because they're a guardian of a, a child. Um, and in Briss's case, it's her nephew, Corin. Uh, Corin is Aya's son, uh, one of the characters who came up in the Quiet Year and died in the uh, in the process of it. So Briss and Corin, I think they're the the last ones of their family. And when Briss decided to leave, she took Corin with uh, with her. So what is Briss like as a person? Um, she's not especially approachable. <laughs> Uh, she doesn't really deal well with people. She's spent most of her life not talking to her sister, Aya. There's been this a long-running, not quite feud. They've just they just avoid each other. She likes being on her own. She's a scout for the village. She ranges the 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 Sharrow, um, well, hunting and keeping an eye out for enemies, and generally just likes being on her own with no one else around to bother her. Having this kid she's got to look after is a very, very new thing for her, and she's t- terrible at it. Yeah, I was going to say, she sounds like the perfect parent. Yeah, she's she's great. So one of the things we'd spoken about was a little bit about, like, Briss's training. She was originally going to be trained as an elder, and then kind of walked away from that and was trained to fight. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's the source of the conflict with Aya, so it's... Uh... It's. I see it as one of the reasons that Aya became so focused on tradition and determined to do things the right way because her sister defied tradition and by doing so put her in a in a situation she didn't want to be in. Basically, forced her to be in a situation she didn't necessarily want to be in. Yeah, 
So let's talk a little bit about like your look. What what does Briss look like? So she's a fairly tall, tanned, weathered skin, uh, short, dark hair. Um, she's got steady eyes, and her hands are covered in scars from training. She wears mismatched scraps of armor that she's scavenged from conflicts that, that she's been involved with. The the village doesn't really have much in the way of well armor is or you know like weaponsmith, so everything is stuff that they've gathered. Um, she carries a sword and a shield. Um, she's also got a spear, and she's got a little little stone dagger that Aya made for her when they were when they were young. And Aya eventually went into being a, a stone cutter, so it's quite a important personal heirloom for her. And did she fight? Was she part of the war against the jackals? She, technically, she was. Um, as as one of the one of the sort of scouts, she would have been one of the people that that fought off the jackals if if she happened to be in the right place. But through some fortunate or unfortunate, I'm not sure what it is, uh, coincidences. She basically ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Every every time the jackals show up, she's somewhere else. The conflict with the jackals took a few a few lives, including Corin's father, uh, Issen. And Briss, considering she it, she she basically became a scout in order to protect Aya from getting going out into the world and getting into fights. Uh, even though she did this, she failed to protect Issen, and she she feels that as a almost like she she's betrayed the family again. It's kind of what that she was there for. Like, that was her purpose. And she never got to actually fulfill it. Sure. And I'm not sure if she feels like she could have beat them. Like, I haven't figured out yet if she's relieved that she didn't get to or if she's pissed off that she didn't get to, deep down. But outwardly, she's definitely pissed off that she, she didn't get to. And if she ever comes across them in the future, she's definitely going to be a lot quicker to action. I think it sounds like a thing that we're going to work out if we play. Definitely, yeah. Okay, and in terms of your humanity, did you decide on whether you're going for the same thing as the rest of the village, or...? No, I, I really like the, the Veil idea. I think it's it's the thing that connects her most strongly to the rest of Ninut. Um, the tradition of looking looking to the sunset, you know, and, and taking the Veil off. That being a sort of bonding moment is actually quite important to her. And um, even when she's on her own, she'll always, she'll always watch the sunset. I mean, that was like... A- a part of the narration to this episode was talking about that moment and like the different ways in which people enjoy it. And I can definitely see Briss being one of the people that kind of like stands alone. I think I think actually this is one of the this is one of the few moments where she doesn't separate herself from people. This is this is one of the few times okay. she'll stand she'll sort of move towards a group and sort of take in the moment with other people and then pretty much immediately move move away without saying anything. Does she talk to them? Not not during the time, no. Not during the sunset. She just comes and stands silently <laughs> right behind you. And then yeah, leaves. yeah, totally, totally. Like, enjoys the conversations that are happening, but doesn't really take part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your stats and your moves. Okay. So my plus two is in Peaceful. Because she likes going off on her own, she's very sort of self-sufficient, and whenever she's, whenever she's got time and space to do something at her own pace, that's when she's best. But she's also, she feels peaceful in in situations of conflict. She'll stay calm when she knows she's got a single path. So if if there's only one way out of a situation, 
she will just resign herself to that that one path and just get on with it. Okay. Um, she's also got plus one in scared and plus one in powerful. Um, I think both of these come down to when things get a little bit out of control, she's still pretty good. Mad is minus one. Sad and joyful are both at zero because those I see those as much more internal. They're sort of emotions that come from inside her, and she doesn't really know how to deal with them. She doesn't she doesn't react very well and can't handle herself under those situations quite as well. What are emotions? We just don't. <laughs> what is sad? <laughs> yep. So let's talk about your moves. Um, sure. Like unlike Charlie, you start with all of the basic moves, which. We're not going to go over now, but we'll be introduced through play. And then you get like two other moves. What did you end up going for? So the Guardian always has the Guardian move, which says at the start of the session, when my charge is in my care, I can roll. The result of that gives me hold, which I can spend to make to make them do as I say. So as long as I'm around Corin at the start, I can have a couple of times in the session, hopefully, where he will actually just do what I tell him to. Um, which is quite nice, quite useful, especially with uh, with Charla around. Yeah, I can imagine there being a little bit of conflict there. Oh yeah, <laughs> just a tad. No! <laughs> yeah, I think um, this and the playful move are both very similar, and it'll be interesting to see what happens when those two come head-to-head. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I've also taken Stubborn Fool, which says, when you fight something dangerous beyond your ken, roll... And I can pick three or one of you're not lost, you reveal a weakness, no one else comes to harm, and you don't suffer wounds beyond the bearing of a mortal. <laughs> so this is, this is I kind of expect this is a, a move I'm only going to use once or twice. And it fits very much in with Briss's idea of she wants to be the one that gets in the way of trouble. And I, I really like how this has been the thing that she's... A, a, a part of her personality the whole time and it's usually just made things worse for other people um so it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens if i when i finally you get to use this one yeah i think i'm definitely really excited to see this move in action i think it should give us some nice moments and i i, I don't think it's a thing that as you say is going to come up very often but... <laughs> and when it does i'll probably just fudge the roll so <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> not fudge uh completely fluff the roll it's yeah more likely yeah just oh yeah you rolled nothing yeah that was a, all that was of them uh-huh. <laughs> yes but yeah i think this is the move i think it's like one of the only moves in the system that really allows you to fight the big stuff in the world mm-hmm. and that might be an envoy it might be something magical and it could even be a remnant like i don't think this is a game where that kind of combat is frequent oh yeah but definitely. this allows you to do that what I love about it especially is that none of the things I can choose involve me winning. <laughs> it's just like, I can choose that nobody like nobody else gets hurt, and I'm lost. So there's that bit which is you reveal a weakness, which is possibly the only way you can harm a thing. Mm. So imagining like if you're fighting a remnant or an envoy, these things are just things that you can't kill normally. There's a little bit of like that Shadow of the Colossus style system, where you see that the glowing that, that space where you can, yeah, <laughs> or or like you know, like Smaug the dragon. You you see like the gap in their scales where you can shoot a bow. It's that kind of heroic stuff, and I don't For think sure. you get to do that straight away. You just get to reveal that or a chance yeah. at revealing that, which, which might might just mean somebody else gets to avenge me, kind of thing, rather than yeah. uh, actually win well, the fight myself. I mean, you might get to win the fight in the next move, but just not straight away. It's going to have a cost. Yep. Yeah. 
yeah, it's great. I love it. And your last move is your Bond move, which is called Priorities. Yeah, when I put the desires of my charge first, gain a bond with them. When I put other concerns before their desires, they gain a bond with you. This is going to be a fun one, actually, because I suspect Corin's going to be getting a lot of bonds with me because Briss isn't very good at putting other people first. Even though she thinks she is, she tends to... I don't know, I see her as quite selfish, but also thinking that she's doing it for other people's good, but without giving them a choice about it. Yeah. So we've not actually spoken that much about Corin. Would you like to just introduce a few more details about him? Um, I I see Corin as quite quiet. Like a lot of a lot's happened to him in his short life. The loss of both of his parents and being forced out of his home and losing most of his friends is is going to inform his his personality and his uh, outlook on life quite heavily. Briss has barely known him uh, throughout most of his life. I think a little bit in my mind, I've got this idea of Corin probably sees you as like the cool aunt. <laughs> who gets to be away and like doing the interesting things and comes back from time to time and like maybe brings gifts. Like yeah, you don't yeah. necessarily spend a lot of time with each other, but all of a sudden you're forced together and like that sort of perception is kind of shattered a little bit by the reality of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, I can imagine Briss probably gave him a knife when he was way too young to have a knife and his mum and I, I took it off him because it was dangerous and uh, that really didn't help matters between them. Yeah, because I think Brisk has to be a little bit untethered from the reality of living in that situation. So it's kind of, Corin gets to look up to that, and that's exciting. But mm. then Corin gets to see firsthand why it's important to have parents who are kind of part of the society that you're in, and who set rules, and who kind of are there day to day. Don't just wander off whenever they feel yeah. like it. Yeah. I think you mentioned that Corin is kind of, like, quiet. I think mean, we've spoken a little bit about he's not quiet because he's like a shy kid. There's a little bit of that, but I think he's also like a little bit resentful and I don't think he quite knows what he's feeling yet. He's definitely in grief. He's definitely like positioned to be like acting out. Very much so. I don't think he blames Briss for the situation he's in yet, but there's a very good chance he's going to at some point. Cool. I think that's everything, unless you've got anything else to add. Uh, no, I think I think it's pretty much covered it. Okay, so let's do Belka next, who is a playbook called The Heart, which is all about storytelling, and they're played by Fryn. Vilta called us her parish. We reluctant weapon, wrathful revolutionary, empty vessel and errant guard, all no longer fit for purpose. Before the village at the end of the world we stood together, stubborn and unsure, and with half-learned language on our tongue, we called ourselves it for her. We are the parish. And after it was said, it was a truth of the world. We follow Vilta. There are principles in every story. Joy, sorrow, growth, decay, trust, doubt, prophecy, memory, chaos. I have known each one so intimately. And there, in the empty sky, and strangers' faces, I saw them all. Vilta had followed story to the Sharrow, to Ninut. I am sure of it. We who left our paths, though, mm, we had followed something else. We were not what we should have been, but we made a new thing of ourselves then. In a version of history, 
I had been a keeper. I had become a heart. I had stepped into the sorrow of the story and ensured that the fabric of the world is, was, and will be. Any story is only as true as its telling, though. And when I unbecame myself, I was untold. I have an entry in the archives. My telling moment is written down. The sound of it is tomb dust on my tongue now when I speak it. Only a name that knots up in the throat. When Vilta says it, though, grief and pride in her voice I cannot understand. Sounds almost alive. In the untold, the space between idea and reality, spirit and body, the space between a story, there is much uncertainty. And now, I think, there is the parish. So, Belka. Hey. <laughs> Who yeah. are they? So, uh, Belka is one of the characters we came up with in The Quiet Year, but not a villager. Belka is part of the parish, which is kind of a bit, they're not all from the same place. So, Belka is from a sort of basin region to the north called Ertal. And they left their position there and found Vilta, I think, not long after they left and has been with the parish since then. I think almost like what you've said, where they were wasn't really a good place. I think on the surface of it, where they were seems like quite a nice place, probably. But so Belka's position in a tal was they were what is called a keeper. It's kind of a, a storyteller and an archivist at the same time. So it's really important for them to witness stories happening and to keep them alive and then when the story is kind of finished or completely told out they'll write it down and consider it sort of done but until then it's it's always considered this kind of fluid living thing so their storytelling takes a lot of different forms stories aren't kind of a conceptual thing to them it's kind of what ties their whole world together which kind of removed them from being an active player in the world and told them okay were you your job is to collect things and to witness things and to retell things. You are outside of this system that everyone else functions in. And Belka, I think you were saying like each of these storytellers, each of these keepers has like their own area of special. Yeah, so, so the keepers is quite a big community. They're, they're kind of the central hub of, of this basin. Um, but the keepers are monitored and trained by this handful of people called the Hearts, which I took from the playbook. Um, because I liked it. Uh, so Belka is one of, I think, nine? I can't remember how many I said there were. I'm going to say nine hearts. Okay. Belka's specific role is, is is of the heart of sorrow. So that feeds into the emotion stats that I chose for them. So they function very well under sad, which is plus two, and quite well under scared and powerful because they're used to working in this space of sad emotion or, or negative emotion and they're used to in that space things going their way so if they feel powerful or if they feel sad they understand where it's coming from and they know how to work through that they work very badly when they're mad because that's something they just can't process because I think Belka they've got a lot of repressed anger I think that any any moment of being quite angry taps into that and they just lose everything completely. They can't deal with it at all. Yet. 
Yeah, I think there's been like a lot of the Belka strikes me as a character that has like a lot to learn. They have a lot yes. of skills and they're they're very competent at what they do, but they have big gaps beyond that. Yeah, I think and it's come out a little bit in the play, which has been quite nice, that as a regular human being, Belka seems like they don't know anything because they've come from this place where they, they did this one specific thing and they they do it very well, but there's I think they've not shown that to the village or even necessarily to the parish yet because there's been no need to and it's been a thing they are trying to figure out their connection with. So I think it's probably going to be quite surprising when it turns out that Belka is not in fact just a wandering fool, but someone who's been very specifically trained to do something, and they do it very well at the minute, they're just not sure how or when they want to anymore. I cannot wait to see uh, Belka flip out on someone. (laughs) It's definitely going to happen. I think one of the nice things for me is, like, I can definitely see why you and Vilta have a connection. Like, I kind of imagine, like, Vilta is one of the first people that saw you as a person, beyond just the thing you were trained to do. I don't know whether after Belka left their position, it ever really settled in quite the impact that they've left behind. There was no open animosity when they left, but I think the Keepers and the rest of the Hearts probably actually aren't super happy about it and so Belka's left a bit of disgrace behind themselves they've probably had their time as a keeper written down which is the ultimate crime you know that's that is done that's dead that's over and you can never be undead about that they've had their formal name taken away from them which they would have had for a really long time so I think it's all it's all going to be a a lot for them to deal with and I don't think they'd really started processing that when they found Vilter. I think they were just like oh thank god something else to think about <laughs> so here's a question that's never come up um, would the keepers recognise the name Belka? Did they have the name Belka before they left? Yeah I think Belka would be how they are referred to by everyone now. Okay. Keepers and hearts and friends and family so Belka would be the name they chose when they came of age but their formal name was tied to them being a keeper, particularly to them being a heart. So that that's dead now. They would not recognise that. Okay. So what does Belka look like? Uh, Belka is, for where they're from, I think pretty average height. So probably, I guess, a little bit tall for the people of Ninut, but not like towering or anything. Eye to eye with Briss, I would imagine. But the the more striking thing about them is their humanity, which in Belka is a very physical and unsubtle humanity. So Belka's Belka's people have a a humanity of horns, basically, which in in Belka is uh, two sets of sort of curved back horns, kind of like the kinds that goats have. One goes on the top of the head and the other curls around towards the front of the face under the ears. And Belka has big goat ears between them. And all of these, the four horns and the ears themselves, between all of them, there are sort of chains strung, attached into the horn material and through loops in the ears. And they're all strung with bells, which are an important part of a lot of the dance routines for the keepers. So a very annoying person to be around on a windy day. Uh, Other than the humanity, they have one item of clothing that no matter what else they're wearing, they will wear which is it's just one long piece of fabric, basically, like a really long scarf or a tiny tapestry. And it's worn in a bunch of ways, depending on the weather, but usually it's 
kind of wrapped cowl-like around the head and shoulders, and then it just flows behind like a cape situation um, that is embroidered with two stories, one on the outside and one on the inside. And those are the stories of the beginning and the stories of the end, which are the sort of two most important, really big stories for the hearts. Cool. The like the look notes that I have for Belka from the list of keywords are ambiguous with fervent eyes and worn hands, and they are non-binary. So they then pronouns. Yeah. Nice. So within your stats already, um, what moves do you have? The original moves that I took for Belka were expression, which is when you take something you feel, a concept or an idea, and express yourself by way of your chosen art, whether performed or presented. And it is experienced by others, roll. On a 10 plus, choose 3. On a 79, choose 2. People understand what it is you intend to convey. One person present must meet you. You spike out the state of your choice in someone present. This experience either begins to change popular opinion or otherwise alter a sense of self in those that witness it, or inflict trauma on those that experience it. And then I took words that sting. When you choose to inflict trauma using your expression, you may choose to target a particular person, inflict plus one trauma to them. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have your bond move as well? Ah, yes, my bond move I really like, which is when someone shares a personal story with you that they've not told anyone else, gain a bond on them, which I think is quite nice, like a little confidant. Yeah, and I think it fits really well with your past, does it? as a keeper yeah i think it's it's so deep in them that they they're never even if they do come to terms with not being one anymore they're never going to stop being like tell me what happened (laughs) yeah i I think the thing that i really liked with belka from the couple of like episodes we've played it is that they're really the character that talks to other people and gets to know them in like interesting ways yeah and i feel like belka will try and make more of an impact on you know, where everyone's going and what everyone's doing as they come into themselves a bit. But I think at this moment, the only thing that makes sense to them is trying to understand what's happening to other people. Yeah. I think an important thing to, like, note with this move as well is that when we're talking about a personal story, like, that is meant in a broad sense. Like, it doesn't have to be a story that begin that is, like, a complete narrative. It could just be, like, a secret that they have or, like, a, a thing that is important to them in some Yeah, way. I've been kind of interpreting it so far as not necessarily, like, I'm going to tell you about a memory that I have or an event that happened, but instead I'm going to tell you something about myself in a way that is personal. Yeah. I, I think it's that personal is the key word and a bit, which is that they've not told anyone else. It's when they yeah. share something that is really key to who they are. I'm going to get all of them secrets about everyone. (laughs) Okay, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. Oh, can I do Belka's secret name that they're not allowed anymore? Because I I teased it and then didn't say it out Tell us that name. Um, So Belka's formal name was the last dance of dust in the empty room. But they're not allowed to use that anymore. That's so good. I'm enjoying the the moment when they just start using it again. (laughs) It's like, actually, no, that's my name. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. So, is there, like, a new heart in place? Probably not yet. I think there would have been keepers who were specialising in sorrow under Belka's training, but I think the appointment of a heart is quite a long-winded process, and there's probably only a certain day of the year that you can do it, so... That actually like ties into the other thing I was going to ask, which is like, are there nine hearts always the same hearts? 
Or will it be like, I'm the heart of sorrow, and then like they go, and it could be like the heart of grief next, or there might not be that role anymore because like the community's changed a bit? It's, yeah, I think it is fluid. It will not always be necessarily exactly the same heart, but you will have them in the same kind of areas. Yes. So the heart of growth, who was Belka's sort of staunchest supporter, took over from the heart of life before that. Yes. And they're, they're in a similar space, but the community changed a little bit. Yeah, and like the, the things that you need stories telling about kind of changes yeah. as well. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks. <laughs> And and from like Belka, I guess we we should introduce Vens. Hello, young man. <laughs> so Vens is played by Ryan, and he's playing a robot called the Unraveling. I always thought I'd settle in a place like this: rolling hills, beautiful grassland, and most importantly, some bustling wildlife. I don't care for its people much, but they can be quite useful at times especially when I'm in need of more secure housing for an evening or two. Serving this land's great remnant has been a delight. It doesn't ask for much, its rare requests are usually easy to cater to. The Sharrow might be an intimidating creature upon first sight, but I know that it's a gentle soul that has guarded these lands for a long time, and in a way it's protected me too. I felt like I was unravelling before I came here. I wasn't the person I wanted to be. The showers helped me to hold myself together. Each new season, I, I tend to gravitate to Mashik, Ninut, Blyker, one of the larger settlements to welcome the return of the birds. Goodness, it's a fantastic sight, watching the swirling flock of jabbers and nils, flint hooks and lace divers, all returning home for the start of a bountiful spring. You'll you'll hear them before you see them. Their squawks and chirps echo through the canyons, enough to get on anyone's nerves. But it's been so quiet lately. There's there is just the sound of the winds. Without the birds, everything seems dulled, muted. The villagers count it as an ill omen, but for what, I do not know. I do know that it has been a while since anyone's laid eyes on the Sharrow. I cannot recall the last time it asked something of me. So I'm out here searching for any sign of it. Hoping to find it before the storm sweeps in. Someone should do the rituals. It's only fair that it's me. The Sharrow kept me safe and it's time to return the favour. And you're the last one up. Tell us about Vens, Ryan. Yeah, so... um. Venz is an older man. He's been well travelled. He's uh, he's travelled around a great part of this region, and the character of the Unraveling is someone that bonds with the remnants that they come into contact with, often acting as some sort of a small envoy to them, but mainly looking after their needs and making sure the people in the area around them know how to act or how to thank the remnant for their protection, things like that. Yeah, I think in my conception of that, it can like be both ways. Like there are definitely quite a lot of people like you who will act in like a nice way to them and will con- use that connection for like some kind of good. But there's probably the opposite of like the people who will just use their powers to kind of manipulate the remnants and use that for their own gain. Almost certainly, I think that 
this is such a great power for somebody to control that if it ever got into the wrong hands or someone realized they could use it against other people or even against the remnant themselves, you know, it could come at a big cost. So it might be worth talking a little bit about magic in this world. So I think it's definitely a world where a lot of people can do things that are beyond humans in our world. And I think we've seen that a little bit with some of the playbooks. Like the Guardian can go toe-to-toe with like magical beings. The Heart can use their stories to inflict actual pain to spirits. And like there are ways in which people can do like small things like that. And then there are people who can manipulate spirits in bigger ways. Uh, so we've got two playbooks that aren't being played. Um, the Weaver and the Binder, who can manipulate spirits, who can... D- who can do small pieces of magic, but they can't do things in big ways. And then you've got the Unraveling. And the Unraveling are kind of unlimited in what they can do. With the Unraveling, it's taking the big power that to them is provided from the Revenant that they work with or that they they help. Um, They can almost do anything they want, but the cost is often that it's tearing them apart. Every time that they weave a spell, they have the risk of unraveling another piece of them. And as they progress, the more times they use their abilities to to their own whims, even they will start to degrade until eventually they unravel fully and become something we don't really understand yet. Yeah, they definitely bear this risk of just losing themselves. And we've not explored it that much through the game yet, but I, I... I kind of see like these kind of magic users as being a little bit distrusted through certain communities. I think the Vens has travelled a lot, not even explained to people what he is. I think maybe even often relying on his knowledge of the world to act as some sort of druid or something like that, just coming into contact with the villages, giving them help and advice staying with them just for a couple of days to get some rest and maybe a warm meal and then back on the road. Someone that really doesn't settle with the community. I think doesn't really reveal who he is or what capabilities he has. I think that he's afraid to do that. You know, it's it's something that's, you know, affected his relationships in the past and affected stuff that might happen in future, you know, and he's he's wary of doing that. So he wants to keep his distance. Yeah, I, I imagine you've probably seen it or like heard the stories of what happens to babies in like the communities where they're found out to have these powers. I think I've been like working out some of the factions recently, and there are definitely factions that will hunt down people like you, whether to kind of eliminate them from the world and stop them being threats to people, or to kind of train them and use them almost as weapons to, to serve their own needs. Yeah, for sure. And I think that Venz is very lucky in the fact that he was trained by somebody who taught them how to use their powers for good and how to benefit all the people that live near these remnants and the remnants themselves. So you've been living in the shower recently? Yeah, I'd definitely say for at least five, ten years, something like that. It's been a long time. Okay. I think one of the things that we've kind of talked about is that you're not a villager, but you probably know some of the people in the village. Like You've definitely been through a few times. You, you've spoken to people, you've met people there... You probably help them when they're doing their festivals to the remnants to talk to them about what kind of tributes might be proper and reasonable. You might you might have helped them in small ways through like healing or whatever, like whatever your capabilities are. Yeah, I think that's definitely within his his remit, especially knowledge of plants and animals and and rituals surrounding the remnant, helping these villagers 
perform those rituals or even helping them to find the correct plants to look after their sick and wounded. It's something that he does, then moves on. He almost strikes me as like someone that people would talk about almost as if they're kind of slightly mythical. Like, not, not in the way that you see them as all-powerful, because I don't think you'd necessarily reveal that to the village, but it's kind of like that, that figure you mentioned in the folktale. Like, sometimes they come into town, and like once every three years they'll come and help us. But no one's quite sure whether they, whether you were actually there or whether it's just another story. I think Venz likes that as well. I think that's uh, part of his persona. He, you know, people are grateful, and he's worried that if he spends too long with these people, that they'll find out. The truth is that he's pretty dangerous, to be honest. I think one of the interesting things about Venz is is that he is so old. As an unraveling, like. Is probably you probably don't get to Venter's age. Yeah, and still be fine and okay without being very careful. Yeah, I think that that's something that's maybe a testament to him that he he knows when to use his abilities. That you know, it's it's such a big cost to him that he doesn't want to use them and lose part of himself. But I think that as well, his age now has come into this state he's in, and I think that it's contributing to him unraveling more and more yeah and i think one of the things we'll probably see over the course of the show is like him being pushed to unravel more and more his powers are hugely useful in a way that he'd been able to avoid before yeah certainly i think that he's going to be put into situations where it's life or death or could mean saving tens or hundreds of people just from using these abilities he has to put himself before that so, so what does he look like? Um, so he's um, an older man, definitely grey hair at this point, swept backwards, just straight back over his head, um, some some grey facial hair as well. I think my original Ryan's for his look was he had dull eyes as well, maybe even like a grey-blue, just, you know, very weathered face as well, I think, that from travelling a lot. Um, the other thing as well, there's a couple of signs I think that he is starting to unravel a little bit, that he's got unsteady hands, he's maybe not as sprightly as he used to be, but he is he is definitely feeling old. <laughs> I think as well that he wears kind of like natural robes, stuff that he's made from furs and hides that he's collected over time. I don't think anything that he's ever killed, but stuff, you know, if he's found bodies of animals that have died naturally, he's used that to make himself some you know, decent clothing. Okay. And what is humanity? The thing that makes Venz unique is that the region that he came from was quite cold. So the people there, over time, they adapted and the, their body temperature became warmer. I, I've written this down as boiling blood, but he can withstand much colder temperatures without needing to wear as much clothing and, you know, often protect him from things that other people would struggle with. And like, is it literally boiling? I think that actually, yeah, you know I think if it came out almost you know, <laughs> steaming hot that sort of thing, he'd really run in at a temperature. Are you saying he's a, he's a hot boy? This is outside the remit of the podcast, but I just had the <laughs> most enormous wave of sympathy for everyone from where Venz is from who has ever had to go through a period. <laughs> Good luck. Oh no. <laughs> that is that is 
fucking fish. Would it be self-soothing because it's so warm? No! No, wouldn't! (laughs) That is incorrect! Does this mean, like, if you got a cut or something, it'd be, like, self-sanitizing? Just cauterizes itself immediately. Just, like, like it's 100 degrees and no germs are gonna grow there. That's true. It's probably very, very hygienic. It's very healthy, yeah. I guess. I <laughs> say, yeah. if if anything, like you actually bleed on things in order to keep, like, to sanitize it. Yeah. I don't think it would go that far, but maybe in the realms of like he, like he doesn't get ill that much. Doesn't you like know, get colds like, and stuff. Yeah, because oh. yeah. they can't survive in his body. No, that it's wouldn't be worth too it. Too hot. I mean, not getting cold is not worth the other thing. Nope. You don't. You don't want a hundred degree <laughs> menstruals. Nope. Fuck. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> anyway, so, sorry about that. I just I thought it, and so everyone else had to. Thank you. I Including appreciate it. Including our audience. I could cut this out. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> You're leaving it <laughs> in. <laughs> Back we go. <laughs> okay. Now that's out of the way. Uh, do you want to talk about your stats and your moves a bit? Sure. So, um. Venz's most powerful stat, I went with scared. So he's got plus two in scared. I think that when Venz is, you know, he's scared, he's really worried that if he uses his powers too much, he's going to unravel and reach this point where he loses himself. So during that time, his power comes through more than ever because he's struggling so much to control it. And then his other two positive stats are peaceful and powerful. Obviously, when he's in control of his powers, he's going to feel strong and like he can do anything. Um, and when he's peaceful, he's you know got time to calm himself and make sure that he's doing things right to cause himself no problems. Um, his neutral stats are joyful and mad, both at zero. Not something that I think Venz will be that often. But uh, And then his negative stat is sad. I think often when Venz thinks about all the things that he's lost and things that these powers have cost him can definitely uh, make him not as potent. So Venz's moves, uh, his style moves were locked because I think it's pretty essential for this character. So he um, can weave spells. Uh, When you use a spirit to weave spells, say what you want to achieve. Choose tags according to your bonds with the remnant. And then when he does them, if he rolls on a 10+, he just does it on a 7 to 9. He does it, but there's some side effects. Uh, that can be I can take extra damage. Uh, I unravel. The spell has side effects. Or the remnant that I'm bonded with calls in a bond on me. And my other ability then, which links into that, is that I name a remnant and I gain a bond with it. And it gains a bond with me. And my spells are affected by that remnant then. So whatever power that remnant gives me my spells take that form. It kind of tags onto it. So I think the remnant you chose was the Sharrow, right? Yeah, so the remnant in our where we begin our story is the Sharrow, and it tags my abilities and it causes them to be sort of powered by the winds. And the other part of that move is that you can pick up new remnants in the future? Pick up. Yeah, so <laughs> if we ever... If we ever travelled into a new territory, obviously it means that I wouldn't be in service of the remnant that I was with before, so I would maybe pay tribute to that remnant and gain a bond with them to show that I was there to help them and for them to help me. Yeah, and you could be in service of like a couple at the same time, I think. As long as you've got a bond with each other, I think it allows you to, to call on this stuff. 
And I think the opposite is true. If you ever end up without those bonds on the remnant, um, your magic becomes wild. So that means that instead of getting like the effect of the shadows tags, you, you're kind of less in control of what happens. Yeah, I think that's definitely more risky. If it doesn't work out quite how I want, then it means that I have to choose additional option from that list. So it means that things can go a lot worse for me. One of the things mentioned there was uh, this idea of unraveling, and you get a special as well, which is a dark gift, uh, which kind of kicks in whenever you unravel. Um, and basically there's a list that you go through. I think it's like 12 different steps you can unravel 12 times. And like the first few are things like you, you might call dangerous attention to yourself. You might spike in your weakest state and recall a, a different time in which you lost control of your powers. Um, you might end up being hunted by people. You might be forced to act against your own best interests, or cross lines that you held sacred as well. And there's some choice in which order you pick these, but they're kind of categorised into three different segments. And the ultimate one is that the last thread of humanity leaves you, and you play out a final scene, and then something happens to your character. You, you've completely gone from being a player character and become something else. Yeah, and I'm excited to see where this takes the character. I definitely feel like Obviously, as they progress, they get progressively worse, and how it's going to be, you know, more and more tricky for this, for Vens to stay in control. And eventually, when he loses it, obviously, I worry for whoever's nearby. <laughs> Me too. Then you've also got your bond move as well, which is called Still Human. Yeah, so whenever someone goes out of their way to remind Vens of their human- humanity, gain a bond with each other. So I think that's quite a good one for Vens because often he feels so much like he's fallen apart. I don't think he remembers that he is still a human. (laughs) Nice. So the last thing that we need to introduce are the bonds. And I think we may as well start from the end. So if we go back from Vens and then all the way back through to Charlie now that we know who everyone is. So what bonds do you have and who did you decide to take them with? So I've got three bonds. Um, so the first one is if someone saw you unraveling, they in a bond on you. If they've sheltered you and helped you to remind you of your humanity, gain a bond on them. So the person I chose for this was somebody called Silver. They are someone from Venza's past, someone who I think at the time was even, you know, they were romantically linked, really helped through a difficult point in their life maybe where they had to use their powers quite a lot and really struggled with it my second bond is if you have helped someone through your knowledge or gifts gain a bond on them we decided that that was with Corin, briss's nephew uh, i think that during one of the times where i came to the village i realized that Corin actually has potential in his future to maybe even become as powerful as I am, I mean, even you know, work with the remnants, so I help them maybe control some of that and have my eye on them for the future. Does Briss know about this? I think not. I think this no. was, and I don't I... think she's going to be especially happy when she finds out if she finds out. Yeah, I definitely think that this was something that I was called to the village because Corin was unwell. I realized what it was, and I you know explained to him what it was, and that. We had to keep it a secret for now until we could figure a way to control it. And was this hidden from Corin's parents as well? Yeah, definitely. 
And then my final bond is if you know another secret and are holding it for the right moment, gain a bond on them. Belka. And what's the secret? So um, the secret is that I know that Belka is a heart. So, you know, perhaps I've encountered their kind whilst traveling myself. And when coming across them, I knew that what they could do. That's quite a distinctive look, in fairness. Yeah. I think it's about, like, knowing, like, what the hearts are as well, I imagine, as part of that. Mm. Like, knowing their background and what their role is and that they don't often run away. So I guess that links quite nicely back into Belka. Uh, What are your bonds? So, Belka's first bond is, if a person shared a tender personal story with you that spoke to a truth in your heart, gain a bond on them. So that's the heart of growth, uh, Karun. It was them who convinced Belka, basically, that it was okay for them to leave if they weren't certain of their place in life. Because Karun went through that same thing and came to the conclusion that they were very happy with where they are. But they understood where that doubt came from. And so they shared that sort of story of doubt with Belka, which is ultimately what convinced them to leave. Uh, The second bond for Belka is, if you convince someone to abandon a value that would have caused them harm, gain one bond on them. And I think what we came up with for that was um, Iov, the young magic user in the parish, is kind of Belka's first sort of real friendship. Yeah, I think so. And so bringing him into this family and convincing him that it was safe for him to be there and that he could do really good things with them and that he could be a part of something and basically convincing him that he could be there. Yeah, so Iov we saw a little bit in the quiet year yes. stuff um who's kind of i think he can do small magics actually quite big magics actually, around yeah, big like ones. kind of controlling people's minds but yeah. he he doesn't like doing that which is understandable yeah and I, so i think the the shared sort of friendship that they have there is belka convincing him against sort of a life of solitude just because of what he is capable of yeah i think part of his backstory is that he was part of an organization called the conclave who kind of like took him and used him for their own purposes and he kind of escaped on that and now refuses to use his abilities in the way they did so so he will use it to train animals in certain ways but he refuses to use them on humans yeah and i don't think belka has convinced him or tried to convince him that he should use his powers i think it was more just that he doesn't have to isolate himself because he has them and not everyone is going to treat him as a weapon yes Um, And the final bond is, if you revealed an uncertainty to someone about a value you've previously held to be true, they gain a bond on you, and that is with Vilta. So the early conversations between Belka and Vilta will have revolved a lot around Belka's unwillingness to consider them themselves a part of humanity, essentially. They've always been told that the Keepers are this separate thing. And uh, Vilta, I think, holds no truck with that and has made it very clear to them in no uncertain terms that they consider them to be a person. And Vilta's kind of the first person who's made that clear to them. So I'm really like looking forward to seeing like how their relationship I'm really looking falls. forward to Vilta being awake. Yeah, being <laughs> awake would help that. Uh, okay, Steve, uh, Briss, so what are your bonds? Um, okay, so my first is, uh, if somebody helps you to raise your charge, gain a bond on each other, and... Uh, I think we we had a chat through this one uh, while we were making the characters, and I think Chala, because she she probably knows Corin better than Briss does, um, and since they've been on the road, especially she's been 
a lot closer to him than Briss has. So are Charla and Corin friends? Did we establish that? Yes. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's because they're so similar in age and it's quite a small group, and also because Charla has a semi-functioning family, Corin ends up hanging out with, with them and her in particular uh, a lot more than he does with Briss, who tends to just sod off quite a lot. How does Briss feel about this? I think relieved, possibly. Like, she's she's very glad that he's got people that can talk to him because she feels very uncomfortable around him because there's a lot she doesn't feel like she can talk about because he's very young and she's bad at talking to people as it is. She's quite worried about making things worse. Okay. Uh, my second bond is if somebody stood by you when things seemed hopeless they gain a bond on you. So for this one, I've chosen Isin, who's Corin's father, who is no longer with us. When Briss and Aya fell out, this was when they were much younger, and before Isin and, and uh, Aya were married, Isin and, uh, acted as a bit of a uh, an intermediary a lot. Uh, he was very good friends with the both of them, and that friendship remained even as, as they got older and stayed separate themselves. So he was sort of the intermediary. He was the uh, the link between the two of them. And also he was a scout. Um, so when he died, that was a pretty big deal, basically, because of the because it was another uh, cut in the, the sort of very weak bonds between Briss and Aya. And my third bond is, if you protected somebody from death or worse, gain a bond on them. And for this one, I've got Corin, um, because Briss has never really trained him to to deal with the wilderness, and I think at some point he's just he's po- possibly wandered off, uh, gone exploring, or uh, got himself into a situation that he couldn't get out of. And Briss was the one who who rescued him. I think that that might be part of the reason that he sort of looks up to her, sees her as this sort of well, like we were saying earlier, the, the sort of the cool aunt, like she she literally pulled him out of a fire or a I don't know out of a tree or from hanging on the edge. I'm not sure, sure what the exact situation is, but yeah, that's that's happened at some point in the past. Like like in the last couple of weeks or in the past? I think I think before they left Nanut. Okay. Um. Yeah. Cool. And finally, we've got Charla. Uh, what are your what are your bonds? So Charla again has the helped Briss raise their charge, and then has three other bonds. So one of them is that someone treats me like an adult, and they have one bond on me. For that, I chose Belka. We decided that this was, that Belka treats Chala with the same respect as an adult, and doesn't dismiss them as a child. Which I guess means that a lot of other people do. Yeah. Next is that someone taught me a valuable life lesson. They have one bond on me. For that one, I chose Vilta. And Vilta's lesson was not so much a, this is the lesson, and more that through watching Vilta stand up to the elders and stand up for what they thought was right, and then for what happened afterwards with the whole being drugged by mushrooms, that, one, the elders can be wrong, and two, that it's important to stand up to that. So I think that'll be really important for Chala in the future. 
I'm sure it will. The last one is that someone let me in on their secret, and I have one bond on them. And so for that one, I chose Tamil, and that secret is still a secret. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to work out what that is. Because I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were just being super mysterious. I loved it. Oh. Can we put some ominous music <laughs> over that, please? Yeah, I'm kind of interested to what that could be um, with your grandmother. Like, part of me probably suspects it ties into the book a little bit. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that. It's probably something to do with the book or something that either some way that you use the book or the way you tell stories in the book or something that Tamil wrote in the book that I would come across. Yeah. I I think that last one's really interesting. Or like even like what is the purpose of this? Yeah. But yeah, that's all the bonds. Nice. And I think that's all of everyone's bonds. I think that's everything for now. Wow. Yeah. So hopefully that is a good introduction to the world, the system, the rules we're playing, and the, and especially the characters. The next session will be episode one, which will be our first play session, and we'll be kicking off in a village. A couple of weeks from Ninut, um, following this group of villagers that are kind of gathered together to flee the storm. And I think we've kind of fleshed out a lot of details about those villagers, but I think a lot of that will be introduced through play. I think a lot of the detail of who these characters are, their role in the world, and like what happens to them, will uncover over the next however many episodes. 